Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Marc Vinette. Throughout his life, Samuel de Champlain was a loyal Catholic soldier. As a young man, he learned to fight with the firearms of his time, acquiring this practical knowledge when serving with the army during the later stages of France's religious wars involving the Holy Catholic League in Brittany from 1594 to 98. During this time, he attained the rank of captain. His soldiering skills, along with his talents as a navigator and geographer, would later serve him well during his many adventures in North America. Let's learn more about this with the help of our friends at LibriVox. The Founder of New France, a Chronicle of Champlain, Soldier, Navigator, Geographer. The life of Champlain is all story. Fortunately, we possess in his voyages the plain, direct narrative of his exploits in America, a source from which all must draw who would know him well. What may be taken to concern us is the spirited action of Champlain's middle life, the period which lies between his first voyage to the St. Lawrence and his return from the land of the Onondagas. The years during which he was incessantly engaged in exploration show him at the height of his powers, with health still unimpaired by exposure and with a soul that courted the unknown. Moreover, this is the period for which we have his own narrative in fullest detail. The most important facts would seem to be these. It is hard to define Champlain's social status in a single word. A Catholic gentleman, within the pale of the noblesse, he came from a family of fishermen. In Champlain's own marriage contract, his father is styled Antoine de Champlain, Capitaine de la Marine. The same document styles Champlain himself Samuel de Champlain. A petition in which he asks for a continuation of his pension, circa 1630, styles him in its opening words, Le Sieur de Champlain, and afterwards, Le Dit Sieur Champlain. In two places, while in six places it styles him, Le Dit Sieur de Champlain, Monsieur de Champlain, it is clear that he was not a noble. It is also clear that he possessed sufficient social standing to warrant the use of de. On the title page of all his books after 1604, he is styled the Sieur de Champlain. He learned letters and religion from the parish priest and a love of the sea from his father, as to whether or not Champlain's parents were Huguenots, because he was called Samuel, a favorite name with French Protestants. No one has, or can, cast a doubt upon the sincerity of his own devotion to the Catholic faith. In short, Champlain by birth was neither a peasant nor a noble, but issued from a middle-class family, and his eyes turned towards the sea because his father was a mariner, dwelling in the small seaport of Brouage. Thus, when a boy, Champlain doubtless had lessons in navigation, but he did not become a sailor in the larger sense until he had first been a soldier. His youth fell in the midst of the Catholic revival, when the Church of Rome, having for fifty years been sore beset by Lutherans and Calvinists, began to display a reserve strength which enabled her to reclaim from them a large part of the ground she had lost. But this result was not gained without the bitterest and most envenomed struggle. If doctrinal divergence had quickened humid hatreds before the Council of Trent, it drove them to fury during the thirty years that followed. At the time of the massacre of St. Bartholomew, Champlain was five years old. He was seventeen when William the Silent was assassinated. 20 when Mary Stuart was executed at Fotheringay, 21 when the Spanish Armada sailed against England, and when the Guises were murdered at Blois by order of Henry III, 22 when Henry III himself fell under the dagger of Jacques Clement. 
The bare enumeration of these events shows that Champlain was nurtured in an age of blood and iron, rather than amid those humanitarian sentiments which prevail in an age of religious toleration. Finding his country a camp, or rather two camps, he became a soldier, and fought for ten years in the wretched strife to which both leaguers and Huguenots so often sacrificed their love of country. With Henry of Valois, Henry of Navarre, and Henry of Guise as personal foes and political rivals, it was hard to know where the right line of faith and loyalty lay. But Champlain was both a Catholic and a king's man, for whom all things issued well when Henry of Navarre ceased to be a heretic, giving France peace and a throne. It is unfortunate that the details of these adventurous years in Champlain's early manhood should be lost. Unassisted by wealth or rank, he served so well as to win recognition from the king himself, but beyond the names of his commanders, there is little to show the nature of his exploits. He served chiefly in Brittany against the Spanish allies of the League, and reached the rank of quartermaster. In any case, these ten years of campaigning were a good school for one who afterwards was to look death in the face a thousand times amidst the icebergs of the North Atlantic and off the rocky coast of Acadia and in the forests of the Iroquois. With such parentage and early experiences as have been indicated, Champlain entered upon his career in the New World. It is characteristic that he did not leave the army until his services were no longer needed. At the age of thirty-one, he was fortunate enough to be freed from fighting against his own countrymen. In 1598 was signed the Peace of Vervins, by which the enemies of Henry IV, both Leaguers and Spaniards, acknowledged their defeat. To France, the close of fratricidal strife came as a happy release. To Champlain, it meant also the dawn of a career. Hastening to the coast, he began the long series of voyages which was to occupy the remainder of his life. Indeed, the sea and what lay beyond it were henceforth to be his life. The sea, however, did not at once lead Champlain to New France. Provencal, his uncle, held high employment in the Spanish fleet, and through his assistance Champlain embarked at Blavet in Brittany for Cadiz, convoying Spanish soldiers who had served with the League in France. After three months at Seville, he secured a Spanish commission as captain of a ship sailing for the West Indies. Under this appointment, it was his duty to attend Don Francisco Colombo, who, with an armada of twenty galleons, sailed in January 1599 to protect Puerto Rico from the English. In the maritime strife of Spain and England, this expedition has no part that remains memorable. For Champlain, it meant a first command at sea and a first glimpse of America. The record of this voyage was an incident of no less importance in Champlain's fortunes than the voyage itself. His cruisings in the Spanish main gave him material for a little book, the Bref Discours, and the Bref Discours in turn advanced his career. Apart from any effect which it may have had in securing for him the title of Geographer to the King, it shows his own aspiration to be a geographer. Navigation can be regarded either as a science or a trade. For Champlain, it was plainly a science, demanding care and observation and faithfulness of narrative. The Bref Discours was written immediately upon his return from the West Indies, while the events it describes were still fresh in mind. Appearing at a time when colonial secrets were carefully guarded, it gave France a glimpse of Spanish America from French eyes. For us, it preserves Champlain's impressions of Mexico, Panama, and the Antilles. For Champlain himself, it was a profession of faith, a statement that he had entered upon the honorable occupation of navigator. 
in other words, that he was to be classed neither with ship captains nor with traders, but with explorers and authors. It was in March 1601 that Champlain reached France on his return from the West Indies. The next two years he spent at home, occupied partly with the composition of his bref discours and partly with the quest of suitable employment. His avowed preference for the sea, and the reputation which he had already gained as a navigator, left no doubt as to the sphere of his future activities, but though eager to explore some portion of America on behalf of the French crown, the question of ways and means presented many difficulties. Chief among these was the fickleness of the king. Henry the Fourth had great political intelligence, and moreover desired, in general, to befriend those who had proved loyal during his doubtful days. His political sagacity should have led him to see the value of colonial expansion, and his willingness to advance faithful followers should have brought Champlain something better than his pension and the title of geographer. But the problems of France were intricate, and what most appealed to the judgment of Henry was the need of domestic reorganization after a generation of slaughter which had left the land desolate. Hence, despite momentary impulses to vie with Spain and England in oversea expansion, he kept to the path of caution, avoiding any expenditure for colonies which could be made a drain upon the treasury, and leaving individual pioneers to bear the cost of planting his flag in new lands. In friendship likewise, his good impulses were subject to the vagaries of a mercurial temperament and a marked willingness to follow the line of least resistance. In the circumstances, it is not strange that Champlain remained two years ashore. The man to whom he owed most at this juncture was Aymar de Chaste. Though Champlain had served the king faithfully, his youth and birth prevented him from doing more than belongs to the duty of a subaltern. But de Chaste, as governor of Dieppe, at a time when the League seemed everywhere triumphant, gave Henry aid which proved to be the means of raising him from the dust. It was a critical event for Champlain that early in 1603 de Chaste had determined to fit out an expedition to Canada. Piety and patriotism seem to have been his dominant motives, but an opening for profit was also offered by a monopoly of the Laurentian fur trade. During the Civil Wars, Champlain's strength of character had become known at first hand to de Chaste, who both liked and admired him. Then, just at the right moment, he reached Fontainebleau, with his good record as a soldier and the added prestige which had come to him from his successful voyage to the West Indies. He and de Chaste concluded an agreement. The king's assent was specially given, and in the early spring of 1603, the founder of New France began his first voyage to the St. Lawrence. Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying images. I'm Mark Vinette, and I hope you're enjoying the ride. <laughs>